Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. So first off, we'll be hearing a couple of excerpts from a forum that I recorded two weeks ago at Melbourne Uni. Uh, the forum was called Unlocking the Truth about Lockheed Martin. It's about an upcoming collaboration between the university and Lockheed Martin, the biggest arms manufacturer in the world, a $13 million new research and development um, lab. So that will be, there'll be a first segment and then a second segment over the first 20 minutes. Uh, thank you, everybody. I want to echo uh, the fact that we are standing on stolen ground. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded, genocide never acknowledged, and let's not forget that the people that are affected most by the militarisation of our world are, of course, always Indigenous communities across the planet. So we're all here today because... Uh, the military tech corporations of Earth are making roughly $47 billion. That's a lot of money to be made out of killing people, surveilling people uh, and militarising our communities. I just wanted to let you know that in this forum we'll be hearing from Sam Castro, who you just heard then. Sam is a key member of Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance and also Friends of the Earth. She's facilitating the forum. She'll be speaking first with Callum Simpson from the Lockout Lockheed Group, uh, which is a student activist group trying to fight this uh, new program, about the new lab uh, and the plans to counteract it. And then we'll introduce uh, Lisa Ling, a highly credentialed US veteran and a former technical sergeant in the Global Drone Surveillance Program who turned whistleblower, and Vincent Emmanuel, another US veteran turns peace activist and writer. Both Vince and Lisa speak about their experiences in the military and what made them start working towards peace. In the second segment, uh, we'll move on to the technical aspects of the drone program and the possible role the, U- the University of Melbourne will play in this global surveillance and violence network. Uh, I'll be playing the whole forum over the next few weeks, so um, yeah, tune in to hear a little more. Standing on that are affected most by the militarisation of our world are, of course, always Indigenous communities across the planet. So we're all here today because uh, the military tech corporations of Earth are making roughly $47 billion. That's a lot of money to be made out of killing people, surveilling people uh, and militarising our communities. And particularly... We're here today because Lockheed Martin, along with many others in the defence industry, are truly moving full bore into Australia as a place for not only uh, embedding the US empire and military, but now for manufacturing software, hardware, uh, weaponry, and of course the technology required to make that weaponry uh, do its job of killing people.
So the Stella Lab that's being built is huge. And I might just open up by asking Cullum to tell us a little bit more about Lockout Lockheed and what we're trying to do. Uh, and to students that aren't from Melbourne Uni that are maybe from RMIT, uh, and there are many other universities in Australia that are in partnerships with defence organisations. But for us here in Melbourne, RMIT also has had the same issue for a very long time with, of course, BAE and their unmanned aerial uh, drone program. So it's not just happening on Melbourne Uni, but the lab that they're planning to build here is very, very big. So, Colin, can you just tell us a little bit about what's gone on so far and what lock, Lockout Lockheed are hoping to achieve? Will do. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you very much, everyone else. And thank you all for coming. This is very exciting. Very briefly on what's happening, is the issue is a $13 million uh, lab is being built here on campus, the Parkville campus, or precisely just across the road from it in the Carlton Connect initiative, which is building a new building, with weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin, which makes $36 billion per year on weapons alone and is the world's largest weapons manufacturer, sells to the US, UK, Israel, which is all very problematic, but also to Saudi Arabia, where some of their weapons, missiles particularly, have been used in raining down on schools and hospitals in Yemen. So the characters that the university has invited onto our campus are some of the worst war profiteers in the world. So that's really the framing. Um, we don't know very much about this lab. That's rather intentional. We are basically going off at the moment a few rumours and some press releases back from last year because the University in Lockheed Martin Australia, a subsidiary of a larger company, basically wanted to put out in the press, claim credit for their innovation, their job with making and um, future-proofing technology, automation, artificial intelligence, all the exciting things it's going to be doing. Um, meanwhile, it doesn't want to engage at all with... Um, okay, what this company is about, doesn't want to talk about that. And so everything else has been um, just quietly sort of spread around. They met with the, another student group here on campus, uh, the Medical Association Prevention of War student group, and they had a brief conversation, um, which I was told about and given some notes from, where they basically tried to deny that they would be involved in all weapons, but they're not willing to put that in writing and they're not willing to guarantee it. So I'm highly doubtful. And also, I just dislike the idea entirely of helping this megalith profit at all. So what we've been doing, um, a group of students got together and started sort of plotting ways in which we could build a campaign against it, the petitions, the protests, etc. And then last semester, we got more disruptive. We had a fantastic theatrical action outside um, uh, the Raymond Priestley Administration building, um, of a massive die-in with University of Melbourne lab coats with blood on hands, placing a bomb in the middle of a courtyard. No, no one. No, no. Papa Maché. Any officers listening? That was, that was a joke. Yes. I should always make that clear. Um, and uh, so that was fantastic and it really got a lot of engagement and it was fantastic and sort of put them on the spot, but we got nothing no comment from the university. Look into the future, there's possibilities for a freedom of information request and we really need to kind of sit down and go through the corporate ties that tie it all together, um, which is where you come in later today. Please bring your ideas and your energy because we need to figure out what a community can do to 
change this. Thanks very much, Khan, for um, getting our heads around the frame of what's been going on so far. So I want to uh, ask a question to Lisa and Vince also to uh, just sort of give us a little bit of context. Uh, you both served in the military. I guess my question to both of you, and we'll start with you, Lisa, is why did you join the military? What was it um, that sort of led you into that briefly? And how did your view of the Defence Force and its related institutions change over your time in the military? And what was the impetus for you to leave? Lisa? So, first I want to say thanks for having me here. Um, the original reason why I joined the military was um, it was a job. And jobs were scarce for people that didn't graduate college, let alone people who didn't graduate high school. And I joined up, um, I was actually in the hospital and I joined up as a nurse. And um, I wanted, because nurses were able to treat everybody from both sides or so, that was what I believed at the time. And, and yeah, my uh, view of the military changed as I experienced what we were doing around the world from the 90s when um, the president of Panama said, we really appreciate you building schools and hospitals and doing medical treatment of our people, but please do not step on our culture. And that comment never left me, so. Things? No, I think like a lot of young um, males in the United States, I think there was a constant sort of barrage of propaganda and um, cultural sort of conditioning to prepare people to join the military. I mean, it was not out of the ordinary. My dad was in the, uh, the army during Vietnam. My grandfather, after leaving Italy and ending up in the United States, ended up back in Italy fighting for the United States and was injured in the war. And, all the rest. So coming from the area that I came from, which is a Rust Belt town uh, just outside of Chicago and originally from Chicago, everybody is steel workers and iron workers and carpenters and all the rest. And much like Lisa in this sort of deindustrialized landscape here in the industrial or former industrialized Midwest, there's not much to do uh, for someone who graduated high school with a 2.0 grade point average. So. It was either join the military or go work in the steel mills, and so I decided to join the military. Um, my criticism of the military as an institution and what we were doing in terms of U.S. foreign policy really started after my first deployment to Iraq. I started reading about the history of U.S. foreign policy, started reading people like Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, and went on my second deployment the week before my second deployment, I went to the San Diego movie theater to see Michael Moore's documentary film, Fahrenheit 9-11. And then I went a week later and I was in Iraq for my second deployment. And during that second deployment, it was a particularly uh, brutal and horrific deployment. Uh, we lost a lot of people. Uh, we, there, our unit killed a lot of innocent people and committed a lot of war crimes in the process. And so through reading and through contextualizing my anecdotal experience, it was clear to me that I could no longer 
serve in the U.S. military. And so after my second deployment, they tried to deploy me for a third time, and I refused that deployment and joined Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace. Thank you. Uh, so, Alex, how did you come to be studying the impacts of drones? And I guess just to also give the audience a frame, uh, what were your initial impressions of the tech and military forces and the companies that produce this technology? And how have you seen the impacts of that on people across the world? Um, so before I started my PhD, I was a research assistant um, in University of Auckland on a project about civilian injury and death in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and the ways in which that's talked about in the Western media or not talked about at all. Um, and at the same time, I was a production assistant on a documentary about New Zealand's involvement in the war in Afghanistan um, and the atrocities that were committed there and yet not covered uh, in the New Zealand media. Um, if anything, it was sold to the public as like an exercise of building schools and hospitals rather than killing and injuring civilians. Um, and around that time, I started reading about drones, which are talked about as a very... Uh, ethical way of doing war, um, a way of protecting civilians and um, minimizing injury. And already from what I'd been studying, I approached that with a lot of skepticism. Um, and I was right to approach it with skepticism because it's not the case at all that drones protect civilians. Um, there are huge amounts of um, civilian injuries and civilian deaths, um, and that's not even to get into the kind of psychological trauma uh, that results from living under drone warfare, something that's very difficult to quantitatively measure. Um, so looking into the drone program, that's where I became sort of familiar with uh, what Lockheed Martin and other big weapons manufacturers like BAE systems do um, in producing the bombs and missiles that drones use um, and also their role in the sort of massive Lisa can talk about a lot about this, the massive surveillance infrastructure that underlies the drone program. Um, Lockheed Martin is uh, behind the distributed common ground system, which is a sort of intelligence um, infrastructure that allows huge amounts of data to be collected on people and for that information to be shared across military branches, but also across different countries. Um, and the results of living under surveillance and knowing that people are collecting that amount of data on you uh, significantly limits your behaviour. So the people that I spoke to in Afghanistan find that um, they don't do things that they did before. They don't congregate in groups anymore. Um, they're afraid to be out at night if, in case that's flagged as suspicious activity. So uh, this has a huge impact on their lives, as you can imagine. Uh, so, Lisa, in terms of uh, drone technology and your experience in the military, what, where do you think the research and the development in terms of warfare is headed, considering uh, clearly that, that drones are being pushed all across the planet, including the other night on uh, ABC as a great uh, thing for Australia to, to get in on? Where do you think this is headed in terms of warfare, first to Lisa and then to Vince? So where the U.S. and a lot of these corporations want to go is full autonomy. Um, they want to go with artificial intelligence and that kind of thing. And uh, what is very important to understand is that the, um, as actually in a uh, business show that I saw while I was in Australia, 
the ecosystem required for this type of massive surveillance system um, is is what they're trying to assimilate with your university um, to get uh, minds to be directed in how they think about the future of technology, the future of warfare. And right now, there's a global arms race happening that is not really discussed on public media. And that is the uh, race through full AI. And what happens also is that the responsibility for killing um, is distributed amongst many groups, many nation states, and that allows for this kind of plausible deniability. Um, and I can, my contention is, is that if any nation state has a circuit in their country from this particular system known as the distributed common ground system, which is the actual host system that hosts many surveillance platforms, um, that not only is that country complicit, but the people involved in the program are also complicit in the killings that are happening around the globe. It's not like I walked into the office and pressed an enter key and all of a sudden a child was no longer living in Yemen. But when I was on my way out the door, they handed me a document that said um, that during my two years, and these are numbers that are not much talked about, that the system that I was a part of um, actually was responsible for the gathering of 121,000 targets. That's one individual in a two-year period. So um, this thing is huge and lacks oversight, lacks oversight, and it's way beyond any governance. Mm -hmm. Fins, I know that you were, one of the times you were out here recently, you gave a uh, lecture at RMIT uh, on some of the technological components and, and where we're headed in terms of warfare. Um, could you add to Lisa's comments uh, around where you think we're headed and, and what sort of threats that poses and complicity? Well, to just piggyback off of what Lisa had said, you know, now you have over 35 nations who are developing drone technology. This is much the same as, say, after the advent of nuclear weapons. So now you invent this new form of technology, and then this new form of technology creates an arms race around the world. And we've been using drones for some time, and this is, again, I think something that is important to recognize because a lot of this technology has been around for some time, uh, yet it's now becoming sort of very popular, and, and that's good, and it's, it's becoming very common to hear this in, in popular discourse in the United States, conversations around autonomous battlefield robots. I would suggest one of the best scholars on this topic is a gentleman by the name of Peter Singer, uh, this is a different Peter Singer than the philosopher and, and the animal rights uh, ethics activist and so forth. But nonetheless, Peter Singer is great. Uh, I'm sure Lisa's familiar with his work. Um, but I would suggest reading his, his book or books on the topic. And just to touch on what I think Callum and Lisa had also mentioned, you know, this also includes not just autonomous robots, but this includes artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, biotechnology, weaponizing that technology. 
and using it in ways in which we can't really imagine right now. So you have even some of the world's top scientists, people like uh, Stephen Hawking, people like Elon Musk, and others who've called for a ban on weaponizing artificial intelligence. And so this isn't something, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago people would look at you uh, like you have a tinfoil hat on uh, these days and in quick fashion this has become something that's very serious and I think the fact that you have the world's top scientists warning the rest of the world that we should ban these technologies immediately says something. And I'm sure we'll get into this more and this veers off the topic of specifically what the weapons technology is going to do in the future. Um, and as Peter Singer says, you know, we're talking about not just the methods in which we fight war, but we're talking about the who of fighting war. And that's, that's a major difference. That's a fundamental shift in the way that human beings have engaged in armed conflict uh, over the course of our entire history. And this also has major implications for what this means for society when the vast majority of research and development money that's being pumped into universities in the United States is coming from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is the research branch for the Pentagon, and so forth. So this, this has, I think, profound implications, not just for the way that we're fighting wars, but also for how our society is constructed, and also, and maybe even more importantly, for the sake of this conversation, how a university functions and how a university is structured. So that last voice you heard there was Vince Emanuel. Uh, he was a U.S. Marine who turned peace activist and writer, or he is, I should say. You can read Vince's work on counterpunch.org, uh, on Z Magazine, in Truth Out, and Telesur English. In that bracket, we also heard from Alex Edney Brown, who I don't think I... Uh, introduced before uh, the segment. Uh, Alex is a PhD candidate whose work studies the impact of drone warfare and drone surveillance on targeted citizens as well as the military personnel behind the controls. Some of Alex's fascinating work has been published in New Matilda uh, as well as on the ABC. Also featured there was Lisa Ling, a military veteran with a 16-year career whose final job with the US Armed Forces was as a technical sergeant in the massive drone program known as Distributed Common Ground. What really blew me away that she said there was in just two years of uh, just two years of uh, working on distributed common ground, um, she uh, identified over 120,000 targets, which is quite frightening. Uh, Lisa appears in the award-winning documentary National Bird. So I'm going to be playing the rest of that forum over the next few weeks. Um, so t- stay tuned to Monday Breakfast to hear more. <laughs> If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. Yeah, 
Uh, we are happily joined on the phone by William Gwynn, who's a resident at the Walker Street Northcote Public Housing Estate. Uh, he joins us this morning to discuss the impact of the state government's uh, so-called public housing renewal project, to talk about how it's impacting his life and the lives of other people in these affected public housing estates. Good morning, William. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Uh, William, how long have you been living at your current address? Um, oh, about three and a half years. And what's it like? How do you like living there? Oh, well, I know I love living here. It's, uh, yes, it, look, it's great. We do like it. The, uh, the, he's, well, obviously, you know, like it's compared to what I had before, which was, you know, for a few years, nothing at all. So, but, but, uh, and it is run down and it is neglected, but I do actually really, really like it here. It's a great spot. And, um, yeah, I feel really set, I, well, I did feel really settled here. Mm. So, before we get into that, that feeling of being settled and, and how this may be impacting that, what is the condition of the properties uh, that you're living in? Look, they're, you know, like the ones I'm in are probably built in, I think, the late 50s or early 60s, and look, they are, um, look, they're, they are run down. The, I don't think that, like, that, you know, the minimum maintenance has been done for like lots of parts of the estate, I think for a very long time. So they are old and they are, you know, they're not obviously done to old design standards that you know, aren't necessarily what would be built now. In some ways that might be good, but mainly they're, you know, they're, look, they're run down, but they seem to me to be structurally fine. I'm not, obviously don't know, but certainly, yeah. Um, yeah. What about heating and cooling them? Well, is it... um? Yes, look, they... Certainly things like heating and cooling are very difficult. They get hot. Once they're hot, it's almost impossible to get cold. And in winter, it's very hard to keep them warm and it's quite expensive. The acoustics aren't great. So I can you know, hear what's happening in a flat that's sort of two stories up and along really well. But obviously, but my neighbours, I can't hear a thing. So, and, uh, yeah, look, lots of little things don't work, like the fixes and the fittings and things. You know, they tend to break and hard to get them fixed. And, but it is, but you know, look, every house, every old house would have things like this. Yeah. So um, for you who lives in there, um, do you think it's at a stage where they need to be demolished? Or if you had a blank check, would you be repairing what's there? If I had a blank check, I would definitely be repairing them. And, uh, and I would be, you know, investigating, you know, like just actually getting input from residents or from people who, Interested, you could run competitions or something of what of the sort of things that of ways they could be renewed without entirely demolishing them, and then you know really like giving away what's a really large sort of area of public land, mm. you know, which won't be public land anymore. So you know when this development's finished, it will be owned by private developers or by um, you know private housing organisations. Mm. And most of the people living here won't be um, public tenants. Any of them are. So when did you first hear about the government's proposed plan? And following on from that, how do you feel about the prospect that they seem very keen on for you to be sharing um, your housing um, with, you know, 80 or 90% private uh, owners? Well, in terms of, I found out probably about six months ago when we got a flyer in my letterbox and I've meeting uh trial of housing which i was actually you know quite excited about because i've never been 
insulted by housing before, and I went in and there was some, you know, happy people in suits, and they said, you know, the first thing they said is, you know, we're demolishing the housing, and your housing, and I just wiped burst into tears and said, well, I'm going to kill myself, and walked out. The a week later, I still got together and went to a different meeting and spent a couple of hours playing them and had a much better, got a better idea of what was going on. And, uh, look, in, in terms of the, you know, what we've been told is that we move out, they'll demolish and, you know, something around three years it will take to build all the proposed apartments and then we get to move. Then if we want to, we can move back the, and it will be you know, seventy percent or so private dwellings and the public housing will be possibly mixed in with everyone or possibly there'll be one block that's public housing and the other will be private. And for me personally, you know, like I certainly haven't um like I'm not keen on I'm not feeling great about it in the sense of, you know, like if this is actually a sanctuary you know in that, you know, when you're if, you know, people, well, I'm here because I've, you know, lots of things have gone wrong in my life. Mm. And the, the uh, you know, to constantly engage society in that situation, there is actually stigma and it is difficult. And yes, living with other public housing tenants, you might think, oh, well, you know, it might be terrible, but in fact, at least when I come here, I'm here with other people that are in a, you know, similar situation. Mm. And it is like it does, and it does feel like a sanctuary. So, the and what that, what it will mean when being mixed in, I could imagine I could imagine a situation where it might be good. But I've read lots of things online about different situations, similar situations in Victoria and all around the world, mm. and I haven't really found one where people have said that it worked. And the the Similar sort of schemes I've trialled here, particularly one in Carlton. Mm-hmm. The you know the things I read actually make it look really depressing and make it look like you would then be living with the stigma of you know being marginal twenty four seven. And uh, so yes, it hasn't been explained with how it's going to work, and I don't think that really a lot of thought has actually been put into how it's going to work. In fact, I'm really confident it hasn't. So will so will when they first contacted you and that a lot of the language coming from government is that they're in a consultative phase you know that it, that it's cons- they're having consultations with you do you feel like these concerns that you have about the necessity of uh, demolishing about you know the prospect of shared spaces with private owners are being heard are being considered or does it feel like they've already got a plan and they're more informing you than consulting you I think yes the, the consultation was more is to do more about, um, like, the process of moving us out and where we might, the sort of places we might live in, with and with some, you know, in, in, in between period, and with, you know, this sort of thing, you know, we've been allowed to contribute, we've you know, asked our opinion as to, you know, what we, you know, what people think should be built here, mm-hmm. but the, it's actually really the, all the key decisions were made well before the consultation started, so they'd already made the decision and allocated the funds to demolish and to relocate people. They'd already developed the plan to, you know, like essentially extract, swap the land with developers in return for getting some new public housing built. 
So it didn't, it doesn't feel like a consultation in a meaningful way in the sense of we've got a problem with public housing. These are the problems that we have, you know, and then actually a discussion of how that might be solved. And it does look, I mean, I certainly don't feel like I've had any sort of input into the broader decision of what's being done with, you know, what a place I live, but also as a member of the public is a, you know, represents a, you know, a public asset mm. and, you know, and part of our society, just like the parks are and hospitals are and schools are, which is going to be sold. And you can only sell it once, can't you? You can. And then, then and it's hard to imagine the government ever buying these things back that seem to go that way. When the government no. sells something or privatises it, it's sold. Hmm. So, have they given you much information about where you will live during the demolition? Do you know when you'll be moving? How long you'll be there? Well, um, look, in terms of timing, originally we were, you know, we were told it could have been, you know, well, September. Then it was, then they pushed it towards the end of the year, but we were going to be contacted again in September, but we weren't. The and the in terms of where, well, it's, they've, you know, they've made oral commitments that we'll be that we'll be able to stay within the area, you know, for things like schools and mm. medical stuff. And look, I I actually am I do want to believe you know, I want I think I want to believe, you know, so I do actually believe them that that's what they're gonna try and do. The and the uh of course, you know, once we're out we've got much when we want bargaining power and government's concerns and things like that, I don't know how one government effectively can bind, you know, the future government. Mm. That doesn't seem to happen very often. So we've got, there's, there are assurances from the staff who say you'll be in the area, you'll be able to come back. And then when you talk to the legal terms and things, they say, well, you've got no guarantee. So yeah. the... And how's the mood... Of- Sorry to interrupt you. How's the mood okay. around, um, you know, the estates, other families, people with kids? How are people feeling about? Look, the po- look, to be honest, it really varies. There's, there are a lot of people here who are uh, sort of like recent migrants or, re- or refugees, and a lot of they, you know, come from, you know, much more difficult societies than here. And in, uh, I think, and certainly where they're from, and they're sort of experience, you don't argue with government, and you just listen and you do what you're told and the uh, the families that I know quite well look their primary concern if I've got children their biggest concerns are where will I go to school will I stay in the area and that and the fear of that being like a bit indeterminate and you know could you get sent to Frankston could you get sent to Dandenong or something which would completely alter their lives is really enough to keep people subdued and just a bit nervous and and the older sort of generally, you know, sort of Caucasian Australians who have probably have been in housing a long time here, they are, you know, the level of, of hostility and distrust towards housing is almost terrifying in a sense, uh, partly because of the experiences they've had, I think, mm. in the past, particularly this state was radically altered, I think, about 10 or 15 years ago, not that long ago, and a lot of it was knocked down and rebuilt. And uh, the, so they're furious that they were put through 
you know, like a whole rebuilding exercise, I need to now be told that's going to be knocked down as well when mm. that property is quite new. Mm. So, but there is the public tenants uh, in these these estates, there are a couple of estates that are you know, three to four storeys high, they don't, you know, call walk ups because they don't have lifts. They're not like the big, um, like the flats in Fitzroy and Collingwood and stuff where they've got, you know, they, the flats tend to have quite a strong identity and, you know, are able to just go together and stop government from doing things they don't like. Mm. But, the, but the, you know, there's only a few hundred people on our estate. The other estates that are affected in this development are spread throughout Melbourne and, the, uh, you know, when we hold some meetings to get together and talk about it, well, you might get 100 people or something out of mm. uh, 3,000. Well, hopefully you're making enough noise that they will listen to your concerns through this process. I know here at 3CR there's a lot of people interested in, um, you know, what's being done to yourself and other people around this issue and we'll be following the story. Um, thank you heaps for joining us this morning and giving us some, some insight um, into how this uh, renewal project is affecting the people who it's most affecting, the people living in the houses. And, um, yeah, best of luck with your consultations with government to make sure the outcomes are good for you, okay? Thank you very much. Thanks, Will. Ruminations, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. CR, Peter Davis and myself are all constituents of the seat of Melbourne, whose Federal Member of Parliament is Adam Bant from the Greens. We quizzed him recently on issues around Centrelink robo-debts and his party's response to the fiasco. Peter began with a question on constituency matters. Since the introduction of the OCI or robo-debt in the middle of last year, what sort of proportion of constituencies have been contacting your office for assistance in dealing with alleged Centrelink debts? We saw a real spike when the system started to be implemented and the problem with the spike is that the worst cases were really bad, like we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars that people are being chased for and often being forced to justify essentially with a reversing of the onus of proof why they shouldn't pay a debt that they thought that they never had or going back several years and so the message that came through from um, people coming through our doors was that they were being told that they had debts often from many years ago and then being guilty till proven innocent and forced to themselves have to justify why they didn't have to pay that debt. We asked Adam how his office tended to respond to cases of alleged debts and to what extent his office referred constituents to other bodies. 
Part of my job as a local MP is to help solve problems for people who live in the area and that involves dealing directly with the government departments. In some instances we've had to refer people off to other agencies who might be able to help with legal issues but that's been the minority. We've tended to try and resolve most of them ourselves. Even for us as MPs, it can take a while to get through to Centrelink, but it's nothing like what members of the public face. And uh, one report that I saw, you know, 22 million calls going unanswered. We face that, but we tend to get an answer. It may not always be the answer that people like, but we take it up ourselves. One of the recommendations of the Senate Committee into Robo-Debts urges the Department to manually reassess all alleged debts that arise from income averaging of ATO data. We asked Adam Bant if the department would be sympathetic to this idea. They could and should be sympathetic to the argument. They probably need additional resourcing to do it because, um, as I said, the government has been cutting to the bone in the public service and we're seeing the results of that. But I don't think it's too big an ask to ask that an actual human being be involved before you cut someone's payments. With reviews and appeal and, and tribunal options, can we expect any improvement in flexibility from the department and the government on these issues? The government's putting on a brave face and saying there's no problem, uh, but I think they've understood that there is. And the message is starting to get through, for example, of even from people in their constituency of um, the waiting times that you know people are ringing up Centrelink. I think it's just it's kind of undeniable. Just that's just an example. I think the government's understood it needs to be seen to be trying to fix it, but what worries me is that I think from this government at the moment we might just see tinkering at the edges rather than a fundamental change. What could tinkering at the edges mean? Well, it might mean reducing some of the waiting times that you're on calls, for example. It might mean that the first letter they send out won't be one that mentions a debt collection agency and the like. Now, those things are good, but if the fundamental problem is that the government still going to come after people because they want to save money or boost their fortunes in the polls, then we've still got the same problem. And at what point and by what means will we see a cost-benefit analysis that would show that the extra cost burdens to the department are way over budget in the context of this OCI and will this information ever see the light of day? Part of what we're trying to get out of the government through using our powers in the Senate to ask some questions and to grill the, the government minister's at Senate estimates hearings over the coming months will be to get to the bottom of exactly what this is costing because we're worried that the government actually may be spending... This may be costing the government a hell of a lot more than they're letting on. So we'll be pushing for that and hopefully, hopefully we won't have to wait until the budget in May next year. So hopefully we'll find something out. We'll start getting a bit more detailed information towards the end of this year. And what about the rights of people with disabilities dealing with an automatic um, system? We've had cases of, of people who are, are hearing impaired and not feeling comfortable to go into a situation in the office with an interpreter and wanting to come back or not being... and even people who are vision impaired too. And yeah, we've heard those stories and we don't think the government thought about any of that. The government tells us that they're addressing it uh, we still hear some of those same stories from people in Melbourne and from around the place, but we'll be keeping a close eye on that. The OCI system, now known as RoboDebt, was first flagged in the infamous 2015 Joe Hockey budget. We asked Adam Bant how this policy developed over the two years since. If the government went out and announced as a policy oh, we're going to cut X percent of people off the dole or off 
single parenting payments or other forms of benefits, then it'd be an outcry. And so the way they've done it is trying to do it by the back door by saying, oh, we're going to have sophisticated data matching and you can only get your entitlements if you're entitled to them, and which on the face of it, to many people, would seem reasonable, but actually when you realise the whole thing's been designed to achieve that budget outcome in the first place, you realise it's not about being accurate, it's just about saving money. There seems to be a gradual erosion by stealth, as you said, through the back door of, of changing of policies and focusing on ways to slowly cut and cut and cut and make things so difficult for welfare recipients that their life becomes miserable. I agree with that analysis. Of course it's sustainable. I mean, we're a very wealthy country. It's a question of priorities. And at the moment, for example, if you go and put petrol in your car, you pay about 38, 39 cents a litre in tax. When Gina Reinhart, Australia's wealthiest woman, and when her mining companies go and put diesel in their trucks, they pay the tax and then they get a tax rebate funded by the Australian taxpayer, which costs the budget a couple of billion dollars a year. Now, so in other words, Australians are paying for Gina Reinhart to have cheap diesel fuel in her trucks, right? My point is there's a pile of unfair tax breaks that are given to the top end of town um, to people who've already got an enormous amount of money that could be wound back for us to fund things like a safety net or a social welfare system that supports people, but it's just ultimately a question of priorities. So former Treasurer Joe Hockey used to talk about lifters and leaners. Well, the biggest leaners are the ones at the top end of town who expect taxpayer handouts all the time. It's just called a tax rebate rather than a handout, right? And they um, dress it up differently, but they're getting much, much higher levels of support. I'm really worried Australia is becoming a meaner society, right? And that because governments don't have the guts to stand up to big business, or in fact sometimes they're just in the pockets of big business, they won't do what's needed to raise the money to fund a society that looks after everyone and that cares for everyone. And part of my fear is that from the government's perspective, this coalition government in particular, as they go further and further behind in the polls, that they're going to keep looking for groups between now and Election Day to demonise and to beat up on even more, and they'll keep finding new ways of making life tougher for uh, for drug testing, for example, for people who are on welfare. And, and I think it's all being driven by two things, by saving money so that they can give more in the form of corporate tax cuts, for example, to the top end of town, and also by trying to boost their electoral stocks by demonising a particular group of people. And I think the more we keep trying to draw from that well, the meaner a place Australia will become. We thank Adam Bant for his time and insights. This is a public service announcement with We are now joined by Dr Lauren Rosewarne. Lauren is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and she teaches in the areas of political science and gender studies. She also writes, comments and speaks on sexuality, public policy, social media, pop culture and technology. Lauren, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Good morning, thank you for having me. We were keen to get you on the show and have a conversation with you around Me Too, which is a social media campaign that touches on a number of the topics that you speak on. 
Over the past few weeks, we've seen more and more women make allegations of sexual assault and harassment against Hollywood studio head Harvey Weinstein following the publication of an article by the New York Times which alleged his behaviour was an open secret in the industry. And then last Sunday, actress Melissa Alyssa Milano tweeted, If all women who've been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. So Me Too has now become this platform for women to share their experiences across social media. Facebook, I think, reported 4.7 million people engaged in the hashtag Me Too conversation within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But the campaign's not without contention. One criticism is that the responsibility to raise awareness of the issue is still falling to women, the victim survivors. But from a historical perspective, this is not the first time women have taken the reins to raise awareness and affect change. Is that right? Yeah, the start of the feminist movement in um, this late 60s, early 70s started with a process called consciousness raising. And that was where groups of women got together and spoke about things that they hadn't spoken about previously that were gender-based things that were either discriminatory or abusive. Things like sexual harassment in the workplace, domestic violence, rape in marriage. And women started to talk to each other and realise these experiences weren't isolated, weren't things that just they experienced in their own household, but rather were shared en masse by a lot of women. And that was where these women had started to realise, in fact, this is systemic and there needs to be action and activism around it. And that's really what started second wave feminism and the radical feminist movement of the early 1970s. So what about in terms of outcomes... You know, we've seen some high-profile sackings off the back of their campaign, but what about beyond that in terms of measuring the outcomes of something like the Me Too campaign? And this is very, very difficult because most hashtag social media campaigns generally have their most influence or greatest influence in attention getting, in um, getting an issue spoken about, uh, getting people talking about it, but other outcomes are much, much harder to measure. Firing someone is great in the sense that if they're abusive, then they shouldn't be within a company. Great, you need to fire them. But the idea of actually changing attitudes of perpetrators, attitudes of companies, attitudes of other men who were complicit in maintaining uh, silences around these issues, that takes much longer. Now, the question is, is will that happen following this year's uh, hashtag campaign, given that 50 years ago when women were consciousness raising, this didn't really... uh, Women are still being victims of the same kind of abuses that they were half a century ago. So, Lauren, sorry, Jackson here. What what do you think? Have you seen... I mean, looking at my own Facebook feed where this unfolded for me, you know, I have seen um, men make, um, you know, public promises to look at their own behaviour, to try and change it, to call out when they see casual sexism or find themselves slipping into, you know, an objectifying or, or sexist mindset. Um, have, do you think it's going to have a real and lasting impact? I'm trying to be positive and and hope that that's the case. I guess in in terms of uh, public awareness of this issue, I think that it's just a really bad time that if you are going to be a sexual harasser, now is probably the best time for victims to have your behaviour called out. So that's a good thing in the sense that we're creating a culture where it's not going to be tolerated, at least at the moment. But there are so many factors that play into why, for example, men don't say anything about a colleague who he may not be the perpetrator but turning a blind eye to Mm. the abuse of a colleague 
and that's what is the workplace environment mm. where he is? What are the perceived threats on his own job if he speaks out? They're the kind of culture things that you could see parallels with something like paid paternity leave where you still don't see men taking anywhere near the amount of leave that they're entitled to based upon the perception that it's bad for their career. Mm. And until those kind of cultural attitudes change, you don't get the systemic overhaul that we're hoping for. So, you know, there are power dynamics between the harasser and the harassed, but I think there's also, it's worth talking about the power dynamics in this type of social media campaign, because there's certainly some women who are silenced by it, either by their socioeconomic circumstances, access to social media platforms, their current circumstances, you know, their relationship with their abuser, or who simply aren't ready or don't want to share their stories. Do you think that women in, in positions of power have a responsibility to share that power? Look, I think the argument about having not, not having access to technology now, 20 years into the technology, isn't as potent as it might have been, say, 10 years ago. There are lots of ways to access in the internet. And also, in certain, even in, you know, isolated countries, a lot of people have, you know, access to smartphones and don't have electricity, don't even have electricity in the home. So, internet in terms of access, that's less of a problem for me. I think you're right in the sense that there is an issue about, uh, you know, are victims empowered to, to a position where they feel they can actually readily articulate what's happened to them? And that's a stepping stone where you actually recognise yourself as a victim. Equally, there's going to be a whole lot of people, myself included, who didn't share a story on social media about mm-hmm. sexual harassment. Now, the majority of women, I suspect, won't share a story on social media, yet I would argue every single woman has experienced at least one instance of sexual harassment or street harassment. Now, I think there is a problem from my perspective that because uh, there is such a, a sharing element to this uh, hashtag campaign that we get a distorted impression that it's still just something that happens to some women mm. as opposed to a universal endemic that where every single woman has a story of this we just don't all want to tell it mm. in terms of these stories um you know i've seen comments in my own news feed from women who are being triggered um by looking at social media at the moment do you do you think it's possible to raise awareness without re-traumatising those who've experienced harassment or assault? Look, I mean, the concept of triggering is is very, very complicated and it's something I've written quite a bit about in the past. I think given the popularity of the hashtag, I think if you're someone who is likely to be triggered by reading stories of abuse, then social media is perhaps at the moment not the best place for you to be if you're concerned about being re-traumatised. Now, I don't think it's fair to necessarily say stay off the platform, particularly given that women are always pushed out of public space because of their own safety. But on this occasion, for the period in time in which Me Too is popular, I think... uh, the advantage or, or at least the uh, benefit that a woman perceives in telling her story. Unfortunately, there will be some side effects for some women reading those stories. I, I don't see a way around that unless you're choosing not to uh, to be online at the moment. And yes, it's sad, but lots of things work as triggers and a lot of things are unavoidable in, in you know, going about your social media activity. I'm not sure how we can prevent that. Mm. 
Dr. Lauren Rosewarne, thank you so much for your time this morning. If you are listening and um, anything we've talked about this morning has raised um, concerns or questions for you, um, that you do call 1800RESPECT. That's 1800-737-732, which is the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence and Counselling Service. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Tune in to Completada Bailable. Wednesdays, 6.30 p.m. Let's spice it up in Spanish with a little bit of English. Join the feast. The ingredients for our completos are... Analysis, arts and culture, poetry and music. Remember, Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. Tune in. For people of colour in the West, racism and its presence in most areas of life has for a long time had a strong discourse. In the light of greater consciousness of Australia's over-incarceration of First Nations people, the rise in the US of Black Lives Matter movement, and the increasingly well-publicised cross-community tension in Western Europe, it has been made increasingly difficult for white people to ignore racism. Conversations are starting, scare quotes, in the form of public actions and activism. And it's a good thing, surely, for more people to be actively confronting racism and hatred in their communities. But is there such thing as bad activism? Dr. Helen Ngo is a lecturer in philosophy in the Faculty of Arts and Education of Deakin University. She'll be speaking at On Anti-Racism, a Critical Philosophy of Race Symposium, which is being supported by Philosophies of Difference and Fire Research Group at Deakin. Speaking on simulative experiments aiming at anti-racist solidarity. Uh, Dr. Helen Ngo, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Thanks very much for having me, Will. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, so in our emails before this interview, you pointed me to two anti-racist projects that you've looked into and critiqued as, um, in some cases, problematic, World Hijab Day and every, the Everyday Racism app. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get into what these are exactly, can I ask you what it is that the organisers of these projects and projects like these, what are their stated aims? So these two particular aims, and maybe just to provide a little bit of context for your mm. listeners, so yeah. um, these projects um, are ones that I'm looking at in my um, particular paper mm. that I'll be presenting, um, but I'll be presenting a paper alongside two other scholars uh, in, um, in that symposium. Um, but yes, for these two projects, the aims of them um, sensibly are to foster a certain kind of um, understanding or empathy towards people who experience racism as part of their daily lives. So um, World Hijab Day, for example, is um, a movement that encourages uh, non-Muslim women or Muslim women who don't wear hijab to wear the hijab for a day so that they can uh, scare quote, quote unquote, um, you know, understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of, uh, a Muslim hijabi. And, and everyday so racism sort understanding of understanding and uh, sort of through direct experience. That's right. So both yeah. of these projects, what I want to claim is that they, um, what they have in common is that they try to foster um, understanding and anti-racist solidarity through an embodied experience of racism. And again, um, quote sort of around embodied experience. Um, yeah. And so looking at World Hijab Day, the founder, Nazma Khan, explained the foundation of World Hijab Day by saying that, um, quote, I figured the only way to end discrimination is if we ask our fellow sisters to experience hijab themselves. Yeah. Um, what, what is there to critique in there? Because it sounds like it's sort of, a, like intuitively, it sounds like a very effective way. Yeah, I mean, I think it does, and I think this is why it's had a lot of support mm. worldwide. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of thing that usually gets a lot of media attention. Um, and is reported on fairly sympathetically. Um, 
And while I think we can certainly understand the impulse behind it, I think there are various things that are problematic about it. Um, on the one hand, this idea that um, you can only generate a kind of empathy um, towards people who experience um, certain things that you don't, only if you experience it yourself, mm. um, is something that I would question. Um, I wonder if our moral imaginations are not um, broader than that. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so is it counterproductive for um, projects like Well Chajabi Day to use the, the, the emulative kind of experience of getting into the shoes of someone who experiences racism as a method towards fostering solidarity? Um, look, I, I think it ultimately is. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to give too much away in terms no, of the paper. Of course. I do, I do want people to attend. Absolutely. But I... Um, because I want to argue that there are certain harms that take place when people do that. Um, so it's not just that it's counterproductive in the sense that it fails to really um, generate the meaningful empathy, and I think that's also the case, but I think it's also um, potentially dangerous in the way that it... Um, in the way it, it treats these identities, it, the, the way it, it sort of treats... The, um, um, a Muslim hijabi identity is something that someone can just kind of assume for a day, right. um, can yep. just kind of throw on and, and take off. It sort of trivialises those identities and the real struggles that go behind, um, that, that go into, you know, fostering and, and, and living and asserting those identities. So, um, yeah, in that sense yeah, it can it, be. In that the, the minoritized identity can't be shed voluntarily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there is a sense in which... Um, people of colour um, or other, even people from other marginalised backgrounds, these are identities that we live through mm. um, and that um, that stay with us. And so the idea of someone else coming along to sort of assume these identities for an experiment so that they might become more enlightened about it um, is a deeply problematic and um, can be quite an offensive one, to be honest. Sure. Um, are there other instances of this kind of mode of solidarity building, as it were, yep. that, um, that you think are l less dangerous? Is it possible to use that sort of embodying experience of understanding racism for people who don't experience that racism? Is yeah. It, is, it, is that mode possible to be constructive, um, do you think? Look, I don't want to write it off, but I will say that I would be very careful and cautious. Yeah. Yep. Um, because I think you are treading some fairly tricky ground. Mm. I think, having said that, I think there are definitely ways in which, of course, there are definitely ways in which we can foster solidarity, yeah. anti-racist solidarity, yeah. um, whether they need to involve um, a kind of direct embodiment that mm. I would question. Yeah. Um, and what I argue for instead is maybe what we need is something like an empathic listening. Sure. And so that's that's the counterpoint, really, to these um, ineffectual, or mostly ineffectual, um, programs like World Hijabi Day and empath empathic listening. You mentioned. Yeah, look, that's earlier. what I argue in this particular yeah. paper. And like I said earlier, I uh, I don't want to write off the genre completely. I mm. happen to be I happen to work in um, in sort of phenomenology of embodiment myself, and sure. I and I as a sort of an area of my research, and I think there is something very powerful about the embodied experience, mm. but we just um, need to be careful about how we yeah. go about it. And I'm still, I, I have to say, I'm quite sceptical sure. of the different ways people try to use embodiment in this particular case. Mm. There's no need for that embodiment. What we need is for people to listen and to really, really listen. Right. Um, and for that listening to be coupled with a kind of um, self 
um, criticism or critical reflection. Mm. Um, it needs to be accompanied with a certain kind of critical reflection as to how is it that I might perpetuate these cycles of racism or how is it even that I benefit from these structures? Sure. Um, how does my passivity um, actually um, help to sustain this, this racist system? So combating racism takes work and it's hard. That, that's right. And yeah, it's not always yeah. glamorous. No. It's not always, no. yeah, always going to get you yeah. a great Instagram, okay. you know, photo. Right. Yeah. Okay. But if you want to take a step towards sort of understanding um, the, the the ways in which we can combat racism, people should turn up to the symposium. Um, so, again, that's the On Anti-Racism, a Critical Philosophy of Race Symposium, which is going to be held on Thursday, the 26th of October from 2 p.m., it's free and wheelchair accessible at Deakin Downtown. We'll have the details on our website at 3cr.org.au, where we'll also have a copy of the flyer. Uh, Dr. Helen Ngo, thank you so much for coming on Monday Breakfast. No worries. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.